On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire left. Like the a path. They clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, stories from the road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and today I am joined with Officer Nate. Uh, Officer Nate had a relatively short law enforcement career, but I'm glad that he's able to share a couple of stories from from his time with, with law enforcement with us. So, Nate, I'll turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. All right. Thanks. I appreciate you having me here. Um, just a, a general background, I uh, came to law enforcement just like most people do, uh, military background and uh, did college before that and a couple odd jobs. Uh, after after college, my wife actually encouraged me to, to go into the Marine Corps. She, I think she saw me looking at the commercials longing and she, so she finally was like, if that's what you want to do, go do it. So I went and uh, joined the Marine Corps and then after that, I took a year off and uh, uh, started my master's in national security. And then watched my son. He was a newborn son, so I was, I was pretty good. And then after my year was up, I got in with a, a police department and, and started the academy. So um, I think most of us, where we were at, we were right by a Marine Corps base, uh, Quantico. And uh, so most of us were at least former military. So get a little bit of background with my department would, will be kind of important for the story. We were a fairly large department. We had uh, in three districts. I was working in the central district and that a bunch of beat areas, but we mostly stuck to the two beats. Mine was Dale city. The other one uh, would have been Lake Ridge. So we had about five or six officers in Dale city, depending on uh, how well staffed we were that particular day. I worked day shift. We, as a department, we stuck with our shifts. So 
Uh, if you had days, you were always days. We didn't have to worry about shifting our schedules around too much. And uh, so our typical morning would start out. A lot of people would wake up and see maybe their car was broken into or uh, we had a string of car thefts where they'd hit every car on a particular street. Typical day shift calls. Yep, exactly. Typical day shift. And we were understaffed. So every day, every morning when we'd all get in dark cars, we'd look at our, our call board and it was pretty full. Yeah. There's nothing you like seeing more than report after report after report. Exactly. That's pretty much how it was. And I was a new officer. So of course I was, I knew I was going to be getting a lot of report calls. The morning, uh, of this particular story it was just like any other morning. It was uh, January 2017, so uh, we were in Northern Virginia, a little chilly, uh, nothing too crazy. I remember our board was pretty full, so you know you get in your car, you look at it, and you're like, ah, oh, another one of these days. Myself and a, a partner of mine, we actually sat next to each other all the way through the police academy, so we were uh, pretty good friends, knew each other pretty well. We got sent to check on the welfare of a particular person. So we, we show up to her house and the neighbor called her garage door had been up for a couple of days. He noticed her car hadn't moved. She hadn't been outside. So we showed up and we made contact with her and she seemed to be doing okay. Um, obviously an EDP, which would have been a, an emotionally disturbed person. But um, so that triggered us to just investigate whether or not we needed to, to step in and do something about it, but she could take care of herself. She wasn't a threat to herself or anybody else. So we were just kind of rounding out that call. And then we heard over the radio, another call went out for a check on the welfare and our beat area. It was a possible suicide attempt. So my partner and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, well, we need to clear this call and head over there because they, they dispatched two people from the Lake Ridge beat pretty large beats there. There were more experienced officers than we were, and they were coming out of their area. So we decided the good thing to do would be to try to take that call for them. So, so they didn't have to leave their area. So we clear the call and tell dispatch, we're going to head that way. And dispatch was not happy with us. They immediately told us no route to this call. So then I just said, well, negative, we're going to head to the, the welfare check and uh, just make sure they're doing okay. So she sent me a note on the MDC, like, no, you need to go do this other call. So I just ignored it. So we showed up and, uh, when we get on scene, we can tell things are a little hectic. There's three officers on scene. One is brand new. She's still on FTO field. Uh, so she's a field training officer. So she, uh, she's there more or less to kind of observe and, and see what's going on. Once, uh, myself and my partner show up, we're still in the information gathering phase, uh, we know that the subject we're there to see is inside the house, but she's not answering her phone and she's not answering the door. One of the officers saw a curtain move at one point in the upstairs. So we know she's in there. We know she had an argument with her boyfriend and there was a potential that the, the boyfriend might've said to go kill herself. So at this point we think we have enough information to call our Sergeant and see if we can make entry into the house. So he says, go ahead and do it, but you know, don't break any doors down. We're like, great. Well, we know all the doors and windows are locked. And then uh, a neighbor comes out and sees us milling around trying to test all the windows and stuff. And she says, try the door, the back sliding glass door. She said, a lot of times you can pop those locks. So we walk around back and I grab the door handle of this and just start 
rocking on it and heaving it back and forth a fraction of an inch at a time. And then finally we get it to pop. On this type of call, we know that there's a subject most likely in distress in there. So we pull our guns out and we start doing a search of the, the downstairs. Pretty quick search because we think she's upstairs. We don't find her downstairs and we start heading up the stairs. There's this massive white dog comes down the steps. I think it's a great Pyrenees. And at this point, it clicked with me that we had been here about two weeks prior. I never went inside the house, but there was a a call for a a subject with a gun, some sort of a brandishing call two weeks prior. So what ended up happening there was this girl and her boyfriend were in another fight and the girl's friend came over and she got into it with the boyfriend. The boyfriend threatened her. So then she pulled a gun on the boyfriend. The boyfriend didn't want to press any charges at that point. So the girl seemed to be justified in pulling her gun. So we were just kind of like, well, you know, let's just everybody go their separate ways. So just call it a wash and move on. Exactly. So we moved on from there, but it was interesting that, you know, we came back two weeks later, probably just because of another argument with a boyfriend. So we start heading up the stairs. And as soon as my head clears the banister, I can see there's a bathroom door open and a light on. So I kind of, peer around. I look back and was like, we've got a body. And then the guy behind me, all I could see was like half of a body just laying on the floor. And she was kind of blocked from the doorway. And then uh, the officer behind me was really experienced. I think he had like 12 years in the Marine Corps, a bunch of combat experience. So he, uh, he was a quick thinker and he just said, was she breathing? And I said, I don't know. So at that point we both just sprinted up the rest of the stairs and into the bathroom and we couldn't get a pulse. Couldn't really tell if she was breathing, kind of thought maybe she is. So then I uh, took my knuckles and I raked them on her rib cage. And at that point she kind of moaned a little bit and moved, opened her eyes, I think, but very little. And there's just blood everywhere. Her bathtub is full of water overflowing a little bit. And it is black. And then there's blood all over the floor. It's just an awful smell. Like if you've ever smelled death, you know, you can't ever forget that. So the, just the smell of death is in the air. So, and we're thinking, well, crap, what do we do here? We've got maybe seven officers at this point, And we've got some first aid training. A few of us uh, Marine veterans have a little more first aid training. But the, the way this type of call came out, fire and rescue hasn't even started. If we knew it was a suicide in progress, they would have staged and then we could have gone in, secured the scene, and then they would have been right in, in just a few minutes. So we call it in so that confirm it is a suicide. And so we can get fire and rescue started. And then, uh, we start putting tourniquets on her arms. We, we found that she cut on the inside of her elbow, pretty deep cuts, both, both elbows cut. So myself and another officer start with tourniquets on her arm. We get them as close to the armpit as we can. We're really cranking these things down. Uh, that's causing her to move a little bit, which is at least confirming to us she's still alive. And then we can't stop the bleeding. Another officer runs outside to our squad cars. We all toss her our keys so she can get our first aid kits. And she comes back. We put chest seals on the wound, just think anything we can try to do to stop the bleeding. That didn't stop the bleeding still. So then we got out more tourniquets. So we double tourniqueted 
each arm. And at this point, she's barely bleeding at all. So we're kind of satisfied that we probably did as much as we could do there. She's still not responsive at all. So at one point, I start doing chest compressions. And then she moves her a little bit. So we're like, oh, well, she's still alive. Are we supposed to keep doing chest compressions while we're still alive? And none of us really know. So then it's one of those back and forth. Or we'll do a few compressions and then she would stop or she would start moving again. We're like, okay, she's alive. Let's stop. And then she stopped moving. So we did. So we're kind of floundering around at this point, just doing whatever we can. And then, so finally, finally, fire and rescue showed up and they run up the stairs and. If you've never been on a scene with fire and rescue before, normally they take their time. They get there, they assess the patient, they put an IV in, they do all kinds of stuff, hook her up the machines. Well, this time they hardly did anything. They put her on a the bodyboard and just lifted her up and took her straight to the back of the ambulance and she was gone. That was the fastest I've ever seen. So uh, one of the other more experienced officers looked at me and he's like, yeah, that's not good. So that was kind of a bummer. We're kind of looking around at what's going on and our sergeant showed up a few minutes before and he said well she's got some family and her boyfriend's outside so i guess we need to start doing some interviews then we've got to really change our focus so we all go downstairs and the boyfriend seeks me out because he remembers me from the call a couple times before and he knew i was a marine he was a marine so there's a little bit of a rapport there the First thing he says to me was, did you see her naked? It's an interesting comment. Yes. And at first I was like, uh, I just tried to ignore it. I said, I was like, well, you know, we found her in the bathroom and we did what we could. So they're taking her to the hospital. Yeah. But did you see her naked? And I was at that point, I just remember being so mad. I'm just having to tell myself like, you can't hit this guy. <laughs> But so we're doing the interview and it comes out and he admits that they had an argument. He wouldn't say that he told her to go kill herself, but at this point we've got some other witnesses that seem to confirm that we finished the interview with some of the neighbors and I, I interviewed him and then he's like, well, that, let's all go to the hospital. We need to exchange notes. The The girl that's on FTO is going to rate the report. So <laughs> it's always good to have one of, one of those around. So we all drive to the hospital. We get there. We're exchanging stories, trying to figure out what we're going to do. We're assisting the emergency room as best we can. At one point, the entire hospital staff just kind of stopped working on her. And they've got the IVs and stuff in her at this point. And she's alive, but nobody really knows how. She's lost uh, an immense amount of blood. And I remember the doctor said, this woman has effectively killed herself. We need to figure out how to reverse it. Remember thinking at that point, like, holy cow, I guess that's pretty grim. But she just wouldn't die. So after we're at the hospital for half an hour or so, they're like, well, we need to transfer to Fairfax. There's nothing else we can do here. And so they they got her in the ambulance, trans, started transferring her back to Fairfax. We're figuring out who's going to go up there because at this point, we didn't know where the investigation was going to lead us. We thought... If she does die, we might have a potential murder charge, at least some sort of a manslaughter if the boyfriend was the cause of this. So one of us needed to keep eyes on the victim. And uh, I got to do that job because I was the most covered in blood. So they were like, well, you can't go back on the streets. The nurses are wiping me down with their towels and stuff, trying to help clean me up as best as they can. 
So I get up to Fairfax and uh, I get lost, but then somebody finally helps me find out where she's at. So I walk into this room and there are like 10 nurses around her. And it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. These nurses, there are about 10, 10 nurses around her and they just had tubes and wires going every which way and they're all busy and they're all yelling at each other and it looks like absolute chaos. And then there's a nurse on a stand at a computer and she would just yell something and everybody would be quiet. And then she would look at somebody and they'd say something, look at somebody else and then they'd say something and then they would all just start going crazy again. So they got her stabilized enough to get her into surgery. My sergeant told me, he's like, you have to stay there until she gets out of surgery or she dies. So I said, okay. So I, one of the nurses asked me if how I was going to be there. So that's what I told her. And I said, well, how's it looking? And the nurse said, oh, she's going to die. I said, oh, okay. Is it just a definite? And she said, well, if she doesn't die, then she's just going to have kidney failure. And so she's probably going to be on like a machine for the rest of her life. We're anticipating we're going to have to amputate her arms because uh, we had the tourniquets on for so long. That uh, they th- they th- she's lost so much blood that they thought she would have nerve damage and without blood flow to her arms for that long, they thought her arms would just be dead. So I'm hanging out there for a little while and the same nurse that would come and update me every once in a while. And then uh, she said, well, it looks like she's at least going to survive. So, I thought, well, that's a good thing. So I called my sergeant and uh, he said, well, might as well come on back then went back to work and it was still only like noon. So it's still had about half of my shift to work, which if you're not a police officer listening and uh, I mean, that's kind of a surreal thing to go through this huge traumatic event. And then you have to go back to work and write stop sign tickets or something, you know, like that's the jobs. So that's what we did the next day, show up to work and uh, our Sergeant had been in contact with her family. So we got an update that she survived, but he reiterated again that uh, she's not out of the woods. They told her if she, the doctors, if she would have lost one more drop of blood, she definitely would have died. So we're like, wow. So that was pretty serious. And then uh, about a week went by. He said, well, I talked to her family again and things are looking okay. There's still things she's probably going to have kidney failure and she's uh, never going to be able to use her arms. So she got to keep her arms. We found that out. They're going to try that. And like, so it's looking like she's going to keep her arms, but she's probably never really going to use them again. And then a couple of weeks went by and uh sergeant told us, well, Hey, talk to the family again. Things are looking okay. Her kidneys seem like they're going to start working again. Like, Oh, okay. Well, that's good. She's not going to need kidney dialysis for the rest of her life. Another week goes by and they're like, yeah, her kidneys seem to be doing well. And her, she's moving her fingers. And about another week goes by and her left arm's fine. And then uh, I think probably about the next week, it was about two months after the actual event, her and her mom and dad, she's 30 years old or something. They come into the station and got to to meet her and talk to her. And really the only thing that seemed wrong with her was her uh, right arm didn't have full function in it yet. She did have some nerve damage that they weren't sure was going to come back. And then, uh, just, just with the loss of blood, but really she got, she got pretty lucky. It was really amazing how, how she, well, she recovered partly cause she was young, healthy, but before then, but really kind of have to chalk that one up to, to, to a miracle. 
Yeah, you know, we've talked on this podcast mostly to paramedics and firefighters who got a chance to meet somebody that they worked on, and that's probably more in line with the work that, you know, those guys do. So it must have been really cool as a police officer. I imagine you probably don't get a chance to meet people that you did CPR on or put a tourniquet on. It's probably not a, a regular occurrence for police officers. Right, yeah, that's definitely not a major occurrence for us. Usually when we see somebody that we have dealt with in the past, it's not the greatest experience. Uh, you know, a lot of the, in the courtroom for us. Uh, but we did deal with a, a lot of uh, emotionally disturbed people in Virginia, the way their laws were. Um, police officers could take somebody into uh, emergency custody if they were in a in some sort of a mental emergency. So every once in a while in those types of situations, we might see somebody again. But that's still one of those where we were just we took away their freedom a month before, so they're, they're not always – all that happy with us. Right. But, right. So that, that, that was a, uh, a very gratifying thing to, to see something that definitely doesn't happen very often. But. Did you ever figure out what the bizarre questioning by the, by the boyfriend was all about? He was just, uh, a control freak, definitely, uh, an abusive relationship, not physically, but mentally, emotionally, extremely controlling. And I just, I think that he couldn't just get over that. We saw her naked and, saying in law enforcement is no naked's good naked. He never, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I can agree with you there, especially not under these circumstances. Right. So, I mean, there's, yeah. So to us, it it didn't even register, especially with just how, how gruesome the scene was. She was covered in blood and the floor. One of the interesting things was one, one of the guys on our squad was a crime scene tech. So he took all the crime scene photos and stuff and, there was a smudge on the floor where my knee had been and then one where my right foot had been. And then there was a pile of poop like right in between. And it was just like unfathomable that there's <laughs> somehow I didn't even see it there. I didn't know it was there until after he uh, showed me the picture, but I was like, just a stroke of luck. That, yeah. Absolutely. That somehow I didn't get it all over me. That was absolutely and, lucky. And that's another indication of how close she was. Sure. Sure. When somebody defecates themselves, that's yeah. that's just about the end of it. But. Well, I'm glad the story had a had a good outcome. I know it was a, it was a long road for this young lady, but certainly a good outcome. And uh, hopefully, she got away from this from this gentleman who uh, probably made her life pretty miserable. Yeah, um, we know that she moved to where her parents lived um, a couple hours away. So that's where I lost track of her. I like to think that she. Uh, turned her life around and is doing much better now hopefully she is well nate thanks for coming on the podcast and thanks for sharing the story with us um, i hope that at some point you'll you'll dig back through your through your files and maybe share another story down the road it was great having you on the on the podcast so thanks for being here yeah i appreciate it maybe next time i'll have a little bit of a funny story those <laughs> are always me good back. too <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast please take a minute and give us a five-star review on apple podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.